There's a term, Renaissance man or Renaissance woman, that refers to people like Leonardo da Vinci, who had many interests and hobbies from writing and art to engineering and architecture. Another word used to describe people like this is polymath. Isaac Newton and Benjamin Franklin were polymaths. And polymath or Renaissance woman are the terms that come to mind when I try to describe our guest for this week's episode of the Copywriter Podcast. She is Anne Larla Kunf. And she knows a lot about a lot. She's a neuroscientist, entrepreneur, an ex-Googler, expert note taker, and all-around genius. Not to mention that she's a really cool person to hang out with. I've been following Anne Laura for a few years and was thrilled when she agreed to join us to talk about learning and neuroscience and expertise and getting things done and so much more. I think you are going to love this interview. But before we jump into the interview... This podcast is sponsored by the Copywriter Think Tank. That is our mastermind for copywriters and creatives and other marketers who want to figure out what's next in their business. That could be anything from stepping on a stage for the first time or creating a new product, maybe a new podcast, maybe a new video channel. Maybe you want to build out an agency or a product company. Maybe you just want to be the best known copywriter or expert in your niche, regardless of what it is, or even if you don't know what it is exactly, but you know there's something out there for you, this is how we help copywriters in the think tank. You can learn more if you're interested in being part of a mastermind and joining us at retreats. You can learn more at copywriterthinktank.com. Okay, let's kick off our episode with Anne Larlokov. How did you become writer, neuroscience student, mindful productivity nerd, AI specialist, like all of the things that you do. Tell us the pathway. Wow, that's a big question. How do we become who we are? <laughs> um, I always enjoyed writing. I was already writing short stories and poems and little, you know, little essays about big philosophical questions when I was a kid. Um, but I, um, didn't really think of it as a potential career. I am half French, half Algerian, and I grew up in a family where success really looked like following the traditional path. So I went to university, I got a job at Google. I did everything that I was supposed to do. So it took a little bit uh, of time for me to find myself on, on my current path. And, uh, I had a little bit of a squiggly career. I left Google, I worked on a couple of startups, figured out that that wasn't really what I wanted to do and found myself feeling completely lost, not knowing what was next. What do you do when you don't have that very clear ladder in front of you anymore, when you don't know what are the next steps that you're supposed to climb in order to be successful? So I asked myself, what is something that I would always be interested in? No matter the money I would be making, no matter the fame, no matter the recognition from my peers, what would be something that I would love to keep on learning about and wake up every morning and study in an intrinsic manner. And for me, that was how the brain works, how the mind works. Why do we think in the way we think? Why do we feel in the way we feel? So I went back to school at the ripe age of 28, went back to university. Everyone was much younger than me there um, to study how the brain works. I started a master's degree in neuroscience. I did that 
loved it. And in the process of studying neuroscience, I discovered something called the generation effect that shows that by creating your own version of something that you want to learn, you're going to both understand it and remember it better. So I started writing online about what I was studying for school, and that's how I started my newsletter. So as you can see, it's very squiggly. There was no grand plan or anything like that. I started writing a weekly newsletter uh, about neuroscience and specifically about how you can apply it to your daily life and your daily work. That started growing pretty quickly, and that turned into the business that I'm running today, which is called NAS Labs. Again, no grand plan, nothing like that, just learning, experimenting, and sharing my work online. And then can we talk about Nest Labs and what you're doing today before we dig into your story? What happens there? So Nest Labs is, um, is basically a newsletter, uh, also a blog and an online community. Uh, so I usually, to, to keep it short, I just say that it's an online platform because we do lots of different things. If you think about anything an online creator can do online, there's probably something like that that we do in Nest Labs. There's, there's consulting, there's coaching, there are online courses. Uh, the, the common pillar, that the, the thing that links everything together is that we're helping knowledge workers achieve their goals without sacrificing their mental health. So the, the people we're trying to help are very ambitious people, people who deeply, deeply care about their work and who have burned out in the past or who feel like that's something that could happen to them in the future. And our goal is to equip them with the tools and with the support and the community for them to avoid that and to do their best work while also maintaining their well-being. So I, you mentioned the generation effect. And this feels like a really powerful idea that a lot of people who listen to our podcast may be using it, not not realizing, you know, because we're all sort of building our own businesses. But can we talk a little bit more specifically about that? What do you need to do to start to generate that positive outcome? Like what, you know, are there steps for making that happen? Is there a framework that we can think about as we go through uh, creating that positive uh, outcome for ourselves? Yes, yeah, so there's no complex framework, but really the key ingredient here, the key thing to do is to rephrase whatever you're trying to understand in your own words. So this is why, and you know, we're kind of instinctively, we do know that when you were in school and you were just writing down whatever the teacher was saying without rephrasing anything, as soon as that was on paper, you would close your notebook and that was completely forgotten. But when you were asked, and this is why a lot of teachers ask you to do this, they ask you a question and they ask you to explain the topic in your own words, to really think about it in your own manner, to also connect it to other things that you learned about in different disciplines or from different lessons. This is where the magic of the generation effect happens. And the reason why it works is that by doing this, you're making that knowledge your own. You're creating links, associations between that new knowledge that you're trying to acquire and the knowledge that you already have. So you're really making that knowledge your own and acquiring it in a way that is going to stay in memory versus just looking at it and forgetting about it straight away. So that's really the generation effect. In terms of how to do it, it really depends on how you like to create 
best. You could use the generation effect through writing by writing your own little essay. That's what I'm doing. I, writing is my thing. But uh, if you're someone who is more comfortable maybe talking, if you were to create your own YouTube video about the topic, for example, again, rephrasing it in your own words, or if you were going, you could do a podcast, you could do even a little mind map, something a little bit more visual, any way of creating a different output that is truly yours, that is not just regurgitating the thing that you've, you've just consumed, um, if you do that, you're using the generation effect. And what would you recommend for someone who wants to do that, who hears you give that advice, but they struggle because they feel like an imposter or who am I to teach this and talk about this? Or, oh, I can do this, but I need to wait until I know a little bit more information about it. And then I can start teaching and talking about it. Uh, this is such a great question. I'm I'm a big fan of learning in public because I think that, you know, and you've heard that before, the, the best way to learn is to teach. But to people who feel like, as you said, people who experience imposter syndrome, who feel like maybe they should wait a little bit more until they feel like they're an expert to be able to teach other people. Well, the first thing is that you will never feel like you're an expert. It's it's really interesting, but uh, the people who don't have imposter syndrome are often the ones who maybe should have imposter syndrome. So uh, you can you can learn as much as you want about a topic. The thing is that every time, the more you learn, the more it's pushing the horizon of everything you notice that now you don't know. So the more you know, the more you realize how much you don't know. So you'll never feel like an expert. So that's one thing to keep in mind. That time you're waiting for, when you'll finally feel confident and feel like you know enough to start teaching, that will never happen. So that's one thing out of the way. And then second, teaching doesn't necessarily mean that you are the most knowledgeable person on earth who knows everything about the topic. To be able to be helpful to someone, you just need to know a little bit more than they do. And that's it. You just need to be one step ahead of where they are. And... There is something interesting uh, that's called the curse of knowledge, which shows that people who are very advanced in a topic, they actually become worse and worse teachers when it comes to it because everything seems so obvious to them. So in a way, actually, by teaching stuff that you just learned, something that's very fresh in your mind, something that you just discovered, you may be the best teacher in the world for that specific topic because you know exactly what were the challenges that you faced when you learned this? Nothing seems obvious to you. And you know all of the different ways that you can make it a little bit easier to understand. You also know what you wish someone taught you when you were going through this process and how that could have been made easier for you. And you can be the person who makes it easier for people coming right after you. So it's not even that it's okay to teach if you just learn something, is that you may actually be the best teacher in the world for that specific topic right at that time. Yeah, so you should, you should be teaching more. We should all be teaching more as we're learning things. So as you go through this process and you're writing down your thoughts about something that you're learning, how do you connect it with things that you maybe learned last year 
or uh, you know another book that you might have read on a similar topic you know a few months before. I, I guess this is maybe a little bit about note taking and how you connect all of that stuff. And I know this is something you love. You talk about, but what's the process for making that work? And full disclosure, I struggle with this. Like I have notes in in marginalia in my books or whatever, but then you know a year later or two years later, I forget what I was thinking about then. And so, how do you put it all together? Yes. Um, so as you can see, this is part of the compounding effect of the generation effect, a little bit meta, but because you've been generating all of these ideas, all of these things into your own words, and you have them in your note-taking system, or maybe some of it published online, at least you have all of this material somewhere that you can access even a year later if you want to connect it back to what you're working on right now. Now the challenge that you mentioned that's a very common challenge is that, okay, it's there, it's somewhere, it's captured, it's written, but how do you actually go back in there, know what's relevant, how do you connect it, etc. So I'm not saying that there's a perfect system for this because if there was, that would be a solved problem and there would not be hundreds of books written on the topic every year with people coming up with new systems. So I'm just going to share how I personally do it. And I'm not saying that it's going to work for everyone, but something that I do is that I link my notes as I go. So I'm not waiting until I'm creating something new today to figure out what would be a link that I could make with something that was a long time ago. I constantly link things. So while I'm typing my notes, I'm thinking, what does that remind me of right now? And because this is something I do constantly every week, I do maintain things fresh in my mind a lot more than if I was waiting for a long time. I call this mind gardening because I always feel like the sensation is like I'm planting little seeds and then I'm growing branches in between ideas. And it makes it easier than to collect the fruit, the produce of all of those kind of plants that I've been growing little by little. So I would say that the reason why it feels so daunting is that a lot of people are looking at all of those notes that they've actually made over the years and they're like, oh my God, what am I going to do with this? I don't know how to use this. I would just say, scratch that, just forget about them, archive this. You don't delete them because you never know if there's something you want to look up later, but just forget about them. But then start practicing mind gardening today with your new notes. Start afresh. It's a new garden. <laughs> Start afresh. And from now on, every time you add a new note to your note-taking system, practice always linking it to at least another one. The rule is no orphan notes. There should be no note that is unconnected to anything else. So every time you add a note, ask yourself, how is that maybe connected to some goals I have for my business or how is that connected to something I read in another book or an idea that I have, a project I have for the future and just connect it like that, just create links like that. Another reason why I love doing this is that it acts as a filter. If I want to add a note to my note-taking system and after a couple of minutes, I really cannot see how that connects to anything. Maybe it's just something nice that I read and I don't need to add a note to my note-taking system. It doesn't need to come in my garden. It was nice. Not everything you read needs to be turned into a note. It can just be something interesting. That was great. I enjoyed reading this article. I don't need a note because it really doesn't fit with anything that I'm dreaming about or thinking about or working on at the moment. So this is also why the linking habit is, is really nice. It's a good filter to make sure that the seeds that you plant in your mind garden 
are actually going to grow into ideas that are helpful for you. Okay, so I want to get into your brain and your process as you're talking about this. Um, a couple of questions. What tech tool, what are you using for note taking? Because there's so many tools. And I know that's not what this is about, but I'm still curious. And then when you're reading, what is your process for reading? Do you read something first and then go back and take notes and then read it again? What does that look like? Okay, so for, for tools, I personally use Roam. Uh, so if anyone wants to look it up, it's roamresearch.com. Uh, and I'm not affiliated in, in any ways, but uh, Roam is great, I think. But any other tool that if you go on their landing page and if they mention anything like bidirectional linking or networked thinking or any of those keywords, that means that they have features similar to Rome that allow you to do what I'm doing. So other tools include Obsidian, uh, LockSec, there, there's so many of them now. So really just if you're listening to this and you want to give a try to mind gardening and connecting your notes together, just look up on Google, networked notes, bidirectional links, anything like that. It sounds like a lot of fancy, complicated words, but really the main thing about these apps compared to older apps like Evernote or things like that is that they, they really have baked in several simple features that allow you very easily to link your notes and then to see when you look at a note, what are all of the other notes linking back to this one. So hence the bi-directional linking. So you can always see where a note lives in the galaxy of notes that you have in your tool. And that really allows you to go back and explore, make new connections, etc. So that's for the tool. And, um, and then what was the second part of the question? Uh, your reading process? Yes. What does that look like? Um, so for reading, um, it depends if I'm reading something uh, like online or if I'm reading on paper. I'm still, uh, despite being a little bit of a nerd when it comes to note taking, I just I love the sensation of reading a good old paper book. Uh, I, I'm seeing your shelves behind you, and I see that we're, we're the same. There's one, yeah. There's one or two books back there. Yeah. <laughs> um, so. The, the way I do it, if it's a paper book, I usually uh, have a pen or a highlighter and I will just highlight or underline anything that I find interesting as I'm reading it. And it's a very instinctive process. I'm not at this stage thinking, how does that fit with anything or how does that connect or link back to other stuff I'm working on? Uh, it's just anything that feels interesting, really. So oh, this is really interesting. So I'll do that. And I'll add a little dog ear at the bottom of the book, because at the top of the book is to mark where I'm at, where I stopped reading for, for that session at the bottom of it. And I'll just finish reading the, the whole book. And then when I'm done with the book, I'll take it and I'll sit down. It's pretty quick. It takes like, you know, about 15 minutes, but just going through these while sitting in front of my computer and figuring out what I want to import. And it's interesting because sometimes the things that I thought were interesting while reading them, and then when I, I sit in front of my computer, I'm, I genuinely can't remember why I thought, like why past me thought that this was interesting. So again, another filter. So this doesn't go in my note-taking system. And if I ever reread the book, it's still nice to see what I underlined and what I highlighted, but it doesn't need to go in my note-taking system. And if it's digital, it's a very similar process, uh, except that uh, in that case, I have to be a bit more intentional as I go because I have a digital highlighter. And so if I do that, it goes in my note-taking system straight away. So I am going to be a bit more um, intentional, which 
and it, it works really well because I feel like when I'm reading a paper book, it's a bit more immersive and I don't want to stop every few paragraphs to go and take notes. I want to really enjoy the experience. Whereas when I tend to read something online, a PDF or something like this, I'm usually more in active work mode. And it, it does make sense that I'm, I'm fishing for information. I'm actually trying to collect data that I, I want to have in my note taking system. So that's how I do it. So you're doing it actively when you're doing it online. How often are you doing it when you're reading a book? Is it, you know, I wait a week, I, I put the book down and, and just let it kind of sit for a while? Or is it almost immediate? Uh, it's not necessarily immediate. I uh, am not a very, it may sound like it when I describe your system, but I, I'm more of a chaotic rather than systematic person when it comes to my creative process. So, uh, you know, I, I've tried doing the thing where you sit once a week and you do it, but then it started feeling like homework. And you, I love reading too much and I love doing research too much to make it feel this way. So it's more of something I'll do every couple of weeks, sometimes more, sometimes less. But it's typically the kind of thing I would do on a lazy Sunday where I'm like, oh, it's, you know, I live in London, so it's raining outside. That happens very often raining outside don't feel like doing anything else and i just want to do something that's relaxing low effort and i'll just pick one of the books that i read in the past few weeks and i'll i'll do that and again it does feel like yeah i'm, I'm not actually not it's funny that i'm using this metaphor because i'm a terrible gardener uh but it, it it's the you know in terms of more of a it's, it's a bit of a mindful experience basically just going through the notes figuring out what do i want to add what do i not want to add trying to remember why I thought this was interesting. So I do it when I feel like it. And I'm very fortunate that I very often feel like it. So I never really had to put in place any kind of forcing mechanism for me to sit down and do it. And I guess a related question, you know, as you're capturing this stuff, um, I'm curious, like, what's the thought process about what to read next? How do you decide, like, what's the next thing that I need to learn? Uh, I know a lot of us, we, we hear from other people, hey, this is a great book. And so we add it to our list or whatever. But are you deliberate in choosing what you read or what the next thing is? And how do you go about filtering that? Oh, this is so hard. This is so hard, uh, especially when you're you know, lucky to have lots of very smart, curious, interesting people around you who keep on recommending books that seem amazing. So I do have a running list, uh, but I actually don't use it very much. I It just makes me feel good when someone recommends a book uh, to add it to the list. And I know it's there. And um, and so I have two ways of, of deciding, um, two kind of like signals. The first one is just in time decision where I need to do something. So uh, it could be for, for Nest Labs, could be for my own research. I need to learn about something. I just stumble about something I don't understand. I want to learn more. Or um, maybe I'm preparing a presentation that I want to give, a workshop, and I actually want to know what I'm talking about regarding a certain topic. So I'm going to read more about it. Um, so that's one way I decide where I really just read the thing whenever I need to read the thing in order to be able to do my work effectively. Uh, another one is, and this is why it's funny, I don't actually use that list this much because very it happens sometimes that a book keeps on getting recommended by lots of people. And I never really had to check the list to feel like, oh, it's been there three times. I just start noticing because when over uh, the course of a month or two months, you hear the same book being recommended five times or six times, 
you start noticing. And so that's something that I, I would tend to get that book then. And I know we're supposed to be original and like, you know, but I trust the the people that I I work with and I hang out with and I think they're they're very smart. So if a lot of them tell me that a book was really good and, and helpful for them, that's a really good signal. So I'll usually do that. And obviously all of this is for nonfiction. For for fiction, uh, it's, uh, I don't know, I look at the cover and I feel like, ooh, that sounds interesting. That's it. There's no thought process going on there. <laughs> uh, so you mentioned chaos. And I would love an example of what chaos, creative chaos looks like in your life, maybe a recent example. Um, and then in addition to that, because I think a lot of our listeners um, can relate to chaos. That's how we work. I relate to that. Um, what do we need to be careful or avoid um, when we're someone who operates well in chaos? Because there's definitely some repercussions to that. There's some damage that can be done along the way, creatively, business-wise, I mean, relationship-wise in so many ways. So um, if you are operating chaos, what, how, how can, what advice would you give to that person? Yes. Um, so first, what does chaos look like for me? I am not going to show you, but you should see my desk. It's a complete mess. I was going to say, it's usually the desk is usually want, a good I want clue. to see the desk now. Uh, Maybe when we finish the it's podcast, you like can show my us. Desk. Yes. Um, <laughs> so, so, yeah, it's like like notebooks and like, you know, empty like cans of like sparkling water everywhere. And it's, yeah, books, pens, like it's just, uh, yeah. And weirdly, I know where everything is. Uh, I just, I can reach and grab and, and I know that this notebook is here and that's that's where I put those kind of notes, et cetera. So it's uh, some, some form of organized chaos where I, I know where my stuff is. Um, so in terms of how to make the most of chaos and minimizing some of the more challenging aspects of it, I think there are two things, uh, whether you're working solo or working with other people. When you're working solo, to me, I think the only potential negative effect of having a bit more of a chaotic, creative mode of working is uh, the impact, the potential impact on your mental health. Because if you always kind of wait until the last minute, wait until inspiration strikes and, um, you know, or just like kind of like go with the flow of your creative inspiration, I think we've all experienced this, right? This kind of uh, self-destructive procrastination where we and we wait until the very last minute to work on the project and then we panic and maybe we don't get enough sleep to try and finish it. And because we're good at our job, we end up doing, you know, delivering work that's pretty good, you know. But we always know that maybe if we did it a little bit differently, maybe if we had more space, more time, uh, maybe if we, you know, had embedded some sort of, process to consult with more people maybe the work would have been better and also maybe we didn't need to you know um, have all of that negative impact on our stress levels and, and our sleep etc so I think for that things that have been very helpful for me is to have a little bit of scaffolding this is why I have a weekly newsletter because I know that every week the newsletter needs to be sent so there's I'd, instead of having this one massive project that I need to ship every quarter or something like this, I think it would be terrible for, for me with the way I work. I have those small chunks of work that I need to deliver every week. So it never completely gets out of, out of hand. So I would say design small chunks of work 
we're within those buckets, it can be as messy and chaotic as you want to, but then you end up kind of like shipping the, you know, whatever that unit of work was. You just ship it and then you start from a clean slate, gets chaotic and messy again, but then it's okay because you start with a blank slate again and, and again. So, and so for me, it's a weekly newsletter, but if, you know, if for, for any kind of work, you just, just try to figure out how can you chunk your work basically. Um, and if you're working with other people, the problem is a bit more complicated because then your problem, the way, the way you, your, you know, your chaos becomes becomes everyone's problem. Not everyone basically. else loves the chaos. Exactly. Um, and so for this, I um, I haven't found a perfect solution, but something that's been really helpful with working with my team is really just transparent communication. So we do something with my team where when every time someone new joins, um, we fill they fill a personal user manual. So as you know, as if you were going to like IKEA and buying like a, a piece of furniture or installing a new software or something like this, you would have a booklet that tells you. This is how it works. So it's the same for you. This is how I work. And so you you fill it and you explain what are the best ways to communicate with you. Um, what you know, do you prefer to jump on a quick meeting to solve problems or do you prefer asynchronous communication? Just explain to me the whole problem in an email. And then I'll sit down and I'll come back to you and I'll send you a long email and everything is going to be in there. And that's, you know, that's the way I work. Um, do you, uh, you know, do you like to work in sprints or do you like to, to have a little bit more space and time for planning, et cetera, et cetera. So we have that for everyone in the team. And it's been super helpful because it helps diffuse any kind of the tension that could arise from different working styles. And so for me, for example, I know I'm chaotic, but I also know, I mentioned the example of the email, I'm chaotic, but... If you explain to me in a written in an email what the problem is, what what did you what you considered, what you thought about, and how tell me how I can help, I can sit for an hour and really properly think about it, really give it the time that it deserves and the attention it deserves, come back to you and with something I think is going to be really helpful. But if you keep on pinging me and sending me like lots of different like chats and I get all of those notifications, um, I'll. I'll be stressed. You'll you'll be stressed because you're not going to get the answers you need from me, and we're all going to end up unhappy with a problem that's unsolved. So I don't think we should necessarily change our working style, but just having processes in place where we can communicate how we work in a more transparent way. Just saying, look, and you know, I know these are my challenges, and so by the way, you can also call me out when you notice that I'm doing something that's been unhelpful for you. But it's okay because I've. I told you that's something I struggled with. So please tell me when you notice it. And I will make an effort to try and align with your working style when I need your help. So that's, you know, that doesn't solve everything, but it helps at least um, to avoid people killing each other. Yeah, which, which is a pretty good goal when you're running a business, right? Yeah. So that's got me thinking, I'm, I'm curious, like, what does a typical day look like for you and Laura, where you're, I mean, you're obviously writing the email, you've got classes, school, study that's, that's going on. You've got this community that you're supporting. I'm sure you've also got friends and other relationships that you want to keep up. So what does that typical day look like for you? And do you have any productivity hacks that make it all work? Um, I don't really think in terms of what my days look like, but in terms of what my weeks look like, uh, which makes it a lot more manageable for me and a lot more flexible. So 
I'll, in, in order to avoid too much contact switching, I'll allocate days to specific areas of work. So for example, I know that on Tuesday, I have my weekly update with my PhD supervisors and I need to tell them about everything I did in the past week. So usually Monday to Tuesday when I meet them, that's purely PhD work. And very often I'm actually catching up on stuff I should have done the week before, but it's okay because I end up showing up to that meeting on Tuesday with all of the work that I was supposed to, to have done. So I'm head down focused on this. Then Thursday is the day I send the newsletter. So I also do all of my one-to-ones with my team members. I write the newsletter. I catch up with the community. I'm in Nest Labs mode. mode. I'm really in business mode. I don't think about my research at all. I'm super focused on this. I'm available all day over email for my team. They know that if there's something important that they want to discuss, Thursday is the day. And I'm obviously fortunate that I run a small business where, you know, I'm not like a neurosurgeon with people waiting on the operating table for me to do something right now. So it has never really happened that something could not wait until Thursday for me to have a look at. And if that happens, you know, I, I will have a look another day, but ideally I tell them, wait until Thursday, we have our one-to-one, we can review everything together, set the goals for the next week. And it's a, you know, very kind of like slow, mindful way of working together. Friday is also Nest Labs, but more for deep work. So this is where I do research. This is where I start, you know, I think about ideas for articles that I want to write about, uh, strategy, if I'm thinking about launching a new online course or anything like that. So planning, et cetera. So instead of, you know, working, we have no meetings with the rest of the, the team that day. It's really everyone is focused doing more like creative work, knowledge work, et cetera, on Fridays. And Wednesday, I keep as a buffer. So it really depends on the week. Sometimes there's, you know, more work for the PhD, more experiments to run with different things to do. And so Wednesday will be dedicated to this. And sometimes uh, Thursday is is coming and I feel like I haven't done enough for the newsletter and nothing's ready. So I'll use the Wednesday to kind of catch up. So it's really nice to have Wednesday in the middle of the week. That's a little bit of a buffer and it's flexible. So that that's why I was saying, I think in weeks, and not in days because it really helps me a lot to know that today this is my area of focus this is where all of my mental energy and my creativity is going and nothing else okay kara so many insightful points that and lar has already shared with us but let's just chat about a couple of favorites where do you want to start i'm going to start with the generation effect and um how Sharing and teaching knowledge is one of the best ways to to learn and for it to stick. And so that's something that I think, you know, we talked about in depth and there are many ways you can do it, whether it's writing or creating videos or whatever it is. But I think for at least for the two of us, like for me, it's podcasting and being able even to do what we're doing here, where we listen to an interview we were a part of and then kind of dissect it and take concepts and talk about it and dive deeper into it, that is a great example of how it's helped me um, learn and understand in a more powerful way than necessarily just consuming something and leaving it after that. So there are many ways to do it. I think just the key is figuring out what works best for you. 
Yeah, the key for me in thinking about the generation factor, it's not just learning, it's not just doing stuff new, but it's taking those things and putting it into our own words and sharing it in a way that maybe we can only share, somebody else might not be able to do it our way. And in doing so, you're not just generating knowledge, but you are generating this wealth of ways that you talk about things in the world, ways that you can show up differently from everyone else. So I think it's definitely something more copywriters should be doing in their niches, with their deliverables, with their clients, everything. Yeah. And what else stood out to you, Rob? So a lot of, a lot of stuff uh, stood out to me. So um, just initially, as Ann Laura was talking about um, you know, what she wanted to do in life. You know, she talked about how she was on this path that maybe other people had set up or that it wasn't clear. And the question that she asked herself, which I think is really insightful, is what do I want to keep learning about? Rather than saying, hey, I want to be a neuroscientist or I want to be an entrepreneur or whatever, it's what do I want to keep learning about? And I think that's a, a great question because it's not about the position or the title. It's about the thing that excites you. And it could it could result in all kinds of different positions, titles, pathways. But knowing that I want to keep learning about this kind of thing can take you a long way down the road. So it's worth asking, you know, if you're if you're starting out in marketing, in copywriting, is this something that you want to keep learning about for not just for a few weeks or a couple of months, but for years? Is this the kind of thing that you're excited about learning about, you know, persuasion and sales and all of that stuff? If not, maybe it's not the perfect fit for you. But if it is, then you know what we talk about could be an amazing career or at least a part of a career that you're building for yourself? Yeah, that's also a question I wrote down. I felt like that was a really great guiding question. And you're right. I mean, as copywriters, as marketers, we do so many different things. And so there might just be like one sliver of what you do as a business owner, as a copywriter that really excites you and you want to learn about every single day. And so even just figuring out as you look at the big picture, of everything you do, you know, what is one piece that just excites you every time you get to focus on it? And how could you do more and more of it? And maybe that can help guide you through the different pivots along the way. Yeah, play, going along with that too, and Laura mentioned that she had no grand plan. It was all about experimenting and sharing online. And again, I think as we think about showing up as experts in our niches and in the things that we do, we don't necessarily need a grand plan. We're, you know, that we're going to have a best-selling book or that we're going to be speaking on TEDx, uh, TEDx stage about something in particular. We don't necessarily need to know the end goals. It's just about constantly experimenting. So I appreciate that uh, approach that Anlar has and something that more of us need to be doing. But it's hard to do that. It's hard to let go. And I think many of us just cling to that plan and we want to know all the steps along the way and we want to maintain control over that entire pathway. So I think, you know, what, what she's doing, what she talked about is what I aspire to do, but it's, you know, if you listen to that and you're like, ah, I'd like to be that way. It's not always easy to, to kind of experience your career that way, but it's something that we could, you know, keep trying to achieve in our businesses. 
Well, that ties into what Anlar was saying later about never truly feeling like an expert. It's kind of going back to that imposter complex. The people who are experts or at least do know enough, oftentimes they understand the limits of their knowledge. And so they don't feel like they've got an expert, that they are an expert and they can show up in the ways that they should. This is a really good place, I think, to plug our interview with Tanya Geisler, episode 47, where she talked about imposter complex and all about this. Um, but Anlar is basically saying the same thing. It's, you know, you have to, when you're feeling like you might not know enough, it's probably a sign that you're actually a pretty, pretty competent speaker or actor in that space. And you just are aware of some of the holes, but that should not stop you from speaking up and from talking. Yes. And we, we talked about chaos. I think that's one of the parts of the conversation that resonated the most with me because I, I could relate and that's just how I operate. And I'm not necessarily proud of that or excited by it, but it's also good to know that many of us think chaotically and kind of operate in that way. And that there are certain structures we can create for ourselves, certain ways of working with partners or employees or team members or collaborators to help us because it can be really magical, right? This is where creativity can come from ideas, but it can also be uh, destructive at times. And so I'm really glad that we were able to touch on that part of the conversation and talk about some real examples and how we can create that scaffolding and that structure to hold all that chaos together so that it can be a positive thing and not a negative thing. Having structures, if you are chaotic or if you work out of disorganization a lot, and I think there's actually a difference between chaos and disorganization or chaos and messy. There's a lot of crossover, but um, you know, one is certainly more positive than the other. But having those structures so that you can make the chaos work, the creative moments, the the um, serendipity that happens when things are you know not regimented and organized necessarily. Having that structure on the back end really helps with uh, operating from a place of you know, chaos or creativity or you know some level of organization that's maybe not perfect. Yeah. And it's just good to know that there are you know these amazing people um, like Anne Laura who are just also operate in that way. And for someone, again, for someone like me, um, it's really easy to beat yourself up if this is how you operate and this is one of your struggles. I mean, everyone has a struggle, but with this one in particular, it's really easy to be like, well, I'm never going to be able to do what so-and-so does because I operate in a chaotic way. And so to have positive examples, positive role models that show us how we can do it and it's still possible and you can still accomplish big things is really helpful. I know that also led into the conversation around organizing how she organizes her days. And so, you know, that was really helpful to think about how she's thinking about her days. And it's less about um, breaking up the day, but it's more about, you know, a themed day, really. And even when she said, I'm not a neurosurgeon, things can wait until Thursday for my team. It's just such a great reminder that like we create this urgency for ourselves, but things can wait and we can have a day where we focus on that particular project and we don't have to like do all the things every single day. And so that was a good reminder for me. 
Yeah, this is one of the things that we teach in all of our programs. Uh, you and I purposely schedule Mondays and Fridays to not have calls. Those are more days spent on you know our personal things or our business or writing time, thinking time, CEO time, whatever we call it. And we have days specifically for coaching members of the think tank and conducting trainings in our other programs. And I think that approach can work for a lot of people. I've heard people talk about theme days where it's like, oh, I do finances on this day and I do all of my writing on another day. And for me, that approach doesn't quite fit the same way. It doesn't quite work for me because, uh, well, I don't have, you know, six to eight hours of financial stuff to do every single week or the writing may bleed over three or four days or longer. And so the way that, uh, and Laura talks about organizing it by the needs in her business and her life, I think makes a lot of sense. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, we have our, our team, I would say like our team support and podcast is Tuesdays, takes place on Tuesdays, which helps, you know, that's some scaffolding that helps me because if I know we have a marketing meeting every Tuesday, then I'm more likely to turn the chaos that's in my mind, turn it into some type of plan that I can share with our marketing team. And so if you just figure out what type of scaffolding can help hold your weeks and your days together so it doesn't feel like chaos, that's a, a really helpful tool. All right, well, let's get back to our interview and talk about how she's balancing the many projects she's working on in this season of her life. And because you mentioned um, your PhD program, this is maybe more of a selfish question for me because I'm very interested in um, pursuing a degree and going back to school as well. I don't feel like I hear from as many people who are balancing a business, a small business, and um, and also a PhD program. And so uh, I guess so many questions about it, but um, how do you make it work, uh, especially when traditionally we're told that that you can't do both at the same time. Uh, it's it's not going to be that helpful, but it's really it's really it's all about your supervisors. It's really all about your supervisors. And my supervisors follow me on Twitter. They know about the work that I do on the side. Uh, I my PhD is around the neuroscience of online learning, which is kind of aligned with what I do with Nest Labs as well. So there's lots of synergies there, and. I'm completely transparent about the fact that I'm also running this business. They're very flexible with me. And I do work too much, I think, in terms of number of hours at the moment. This is, I don't think that the number of hours I'm working at the moment is sustainable over many years. And it's okay because I'm just doing it for this time for the PhD, knowing that there's a, you know, th th there's a deadline to all of this. And I'll go back to normal work hours after the PhD is really helpful. Um, so, yeah, I would say first, your supervisors are really important. And second, I really don't want to downplay the fact that I have very, very, very long hours at the moment. Um, and that, yeah, it, it wouldn't be something that's sustainable. I also, you know, I don't have kids. Uh, it's very important to mention also. Um, so I, I'm currently in a you know, very privileged situation where I have the right kind of supervisors. I don't have kids. I am not the caretaker to anyone. So I have lots of freedom and I can do this. Um, so that's why I was saying it's like, it's not that helpful. I think it's a, for me, the, for me, the stars really align to make it work. And I, I do think it can work for many other people, but there's a, a big, big, big uh, factor of luck here in, in making it work. 
while we're talking about your degree, I'm curious, like, what are some of the very, the, the big ideas that you're focused on and learning about, or that you're most excited to share from your, your studies in, maybe in your master's degree as well, but in, in what you're doing, uh, I think it's at King's college, right? King's college today. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I'm currently studying neurodiversity and online learning and specifically ADHD, autism and dyslexia. And uh, we're running several experiments. The, the first one I'm going to start very soon using eye tracking and uh, EEG to look at brain waves is trying to understand how your brain activity and how your attention differs depending on whether you're neurodivergent or neurotypical when you're trying to learn something online. And based on previous research, we're expecting to see differences, but we're not quite sure what they're going to be, but we're expecting to see differences. And then uh, in the second experiment, what we want to do is actually start playing with different online learning designs and see if we can modulate that brain activity to bring the activity, uh, the brain activity of neurodivergent students as close as possible to the one of neurotypical students, basically making the experience as effortless as possible for neurodivergent students so they can focus on the learning itself. Um, so that those are going to be the two big experiments in, in my PhD. So as you've built your, your career and created your path, it's, it's truly unique and um, it's one of a kind. And I know as I was reading about your story, it seems like part of the reason you left Google, and correct me if I'm wrong, is because you saw the path in the ladder. You understood exactly how it worked, the game, what you needed to do to get a certain position, and that wasn't what you wanted. And you wanted to create your own path along the way. I think you know anyone listening to this show is creating their own business and is more interested in carving out their own path. But sometimes it's really easy, even as a an entrepreneur, to find a ladder. Maybe it's someone else has built it as an entrepreneur and start climbing their ladder, thinking it's your own, and then realizing how to. Why am I here? Why am I doing this? So do you have any advice for people who are want to build their own ladder um, or own path, but may feel stuck and feel like they're not building, truly building their own, uh, their own way? I, you know, I, something, a piece of advice that I wish someone gave me at the time when I suddenly uh, left Google, I literally told my manager uh, in January that I was leaving and like a month later I was gone. Uh, was that you don't need to leave your main job to explore other options. And it turned out being okay for me in the end, but it was unnecessarily risky and stressful to do this. But I was young and stupid, and I was just like, I quit my job and I'm going to explore other options. So my advice for people who find themselves in this situation climbing a ladder um, that they're not quite sure is the right one for them whether it's a corporate ladder at a company built by someone else, or even if they're entrepreneurs and they're building a company, their own business, and they're not quite sure it's the right thing for them or that they're focusing on the right mission, maybe they want to do something else, so it's not the right lifestyle, is uh, you don't need to, to, to make any um, you know, highly risky decision at this stage. Going back to the idea of mind gardening, Basically, go and explore, go and find different seeds that you can plant on your mind garden. And that can take lots of different forms. That could be meeting with people outside of your current field of work, going to, to events, talking to people who work on things that are completely different. So 
let's say, for example, that you're working in marketing, but you're interested in psychology, just it's very online, very easy to go online and find meetups and things like that for psychologists and then go there, ask them questions. What does your work look like? What does your life look like? What do you like about it? What don't you like about it? What are things that you wish you knew before getting into this field and getting all of that information? We're very lucky to live at a time where you can actually do this and go and meet with strangers and ask them, tell me about your work, tell me about your life. So I would do this and I would, obviously, because I love doing this, I would take notes. I would take lots of notes while I'm, I'm doing this and really trying to paint a picture of different potential paths that I'm interested in. What would that look like to go and explore that path? What steps should I take, etc.? And what kind of a pivot it is also, because the thing is that it really depends on what you want to do afterwards. But uh, some careers, you would need to completely retrain yourself to, to do it. So that's actually a massive risk to say, I'm going to start from scratch. I need to go back to school. I need to get new accreditations and all of these kind of things. And then there are smaller pivots that can still be very meaningful, very significant, that can, that can bring you the change that you need to have in your life, but that rely a lot more on your existing skills. And so if you take, for example, I don't know, again, if you're working in marketing, there's a lot of the skills that you acquire working in marketing that could be used in so many other different fields because you're good at project management, you're good at communication, you're good at, you know, uh, you know, creativity, you're good at like building a message, etc. There's so many jobs where that could be helpful. So I would consider then your options in terms of what does the pivot look like? Uh, is that like a massive pivot? Do I have to start from scratch? Or is there a way for me to get the change I need while building on top of what I have today instead of starting from scratch again? So that's what I would do. And, and I would, you know, just take your time. I know we're all like holding this chronometer in our hands and being like, you know, having this anxiety about time and we need to rush, we need to be quick. We keep on comparing uh, ourselves to each other and feeling like other people are going faster, etc. But if, you know, I've changed careers a couple of times already and this really the only thing that I would tell my past self is don't, don't rush, seriously. When I look back, I'm like, why did I try to save two months for, for, um, throughout this process? Like, why was I hurrying this much to find a solution, it's a it's a lot better and a lot more fruitful to sit with those questions for as long as necessary until you feel ready. So I want to change the direction of our conversation uh, just a little bit. So you are pretty active on Twitter. You have your weekly email. You've posted a lot of videos on YouTube, although I think you're less active since you started your, your uh, PhD program there. How much of that is deliberate and how much of it is, I've got an idea, this is perfect for video, or I've, you know, I've got something that I, I'll just share this quickly on Twitter. Do they all sort of work together? Do you have any plan around that or is it just kind of what feels good as you have an idea that, that you want to talk about? It's a, it's actually a mix of both. It's uh it's highly driven by what feels good, but I do tend to try and experiment for long enough with my ideas to know if it feels good or not. So um, you know, Twitter, I've been on Twitter for years now. I don't, I don't need, I'm very, way past that stage of knowing if I like it or not. I love Twitter. Uh, this is where I've met many online friends. Uh, this is, I can thank Twitter for a lot of the success that I've had with my work today because it's a wonderful place to connect with people, to learn from each other, um, and to, to grow your community. 
Um, but for YouTube, for example, I wasn't quite sure if it would be for me. So I was like, okay, let's, let's do this for a few months and let's commit to it. Let's commit to it. Let's do it. Uh, every week I'm going to post a video. Um, if I had listened to what feels good, I would have not even started the YouTube video, uh, the, the YouTube channels, be because um, I'm not comfortable in front of a camera. Like right now, it's fine because I'm talking to you. I'm seeing two human beings. You're nodding when I'm talking. I, there's eye contact, even if it's through a screen, so it's fine. But talking to an actual camera with zero feedback, it's, you know, that it's, it's some people's job, like they train their whole life. They go to school <laughs> to act in front of a camera and I'm really not comfortable doing this. So if I had just listened to what feels good, I wouldn't have even tried. So I like running little experiments, basically, just doing it and committing to do it for long enough that I can collect enough data in terms of how it feels, but also in terms of how it works. Is it working? Do people... Uh, react to way in a positive way? Is it helpful? Do I get good feedback? And then also trying to think about the balance of uh, input, of effort that I have to put into it versus what I get back. And so that's why when I started my PhD, the first thing I stopped was the YouTube channel because it was still at the stage where it started to feel good. I was like, okay, I'm starting to kind of like get the hang of this. I'm starting to feel more comfortable. But uh, because I was still such a beginner, it was still taking me hours and hours every week. Um, I still had a little bit of that anxiety before sitting in front of the camera every week. I was kind of dreading it. Once I was doing it, it was fine. But it was just this thing that was weighing on my mind all the time. And when I did a little review, I started the PhD and I felt like, okay, something has to go. I can't just add the PhD to everything I'm doing and not removing anything. Then the experiment I decided to stop at that time or to pose and we'll see if I start again in the future was YouTube. So I follow what feels good, but I'm, I also think it's important sometimes to force yourself for a little bit to do something that doesn't quite feel good right at the beginning, because it's a great way to grow, to learn about yourself, to, to you know get outside of your comfort zone. And that being said, if for months you've been trying something and it still doesn't feel good, then it's you've learned enough from that experiment and you can stop. There's no need to torture yourself. Yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts more on that, um, how to achieve your goals without sacrificing your mental health. And I think it's there's so many mixed messages today about, you know, going really big and and being ambitious, right, in pursuing your PhD while you're building a business because it's truly meaningful to you. And um, there's going to be such a huge impact from what you can do um, from that experience. But then there are other messages about rest and slowing down and um, taking care of yourself. So I think it can be really confusing. How do you approach ambition and going after what you want while also taking care of your mental health? The pillar that supports uh, that kind of ambiguity like that, or that maybe that paradox, apparent paradox between being very ambitious and, and wanting to still take care of your mental health for me is self-reflection just making sure that I'm never, ever, ever working and living on autopilot. Because I think this is when you start burning out. This is when uh, you start really hurting your mental health. And maybe actually you end up not even achieving the ambitious outcomes that you were trying to, to go for. Um, so I journal every day. And I don't think it's for everyone because it's something fairly recent for me. I only started in the past year and it's been really good for me. Before that, I only had a weekly review. So it doesn't have to be journaling every day. 
but I always had some form of a regular self-reflection, a little check-in to see how I was doing. And that really is the key to everything when it comes to being ambitious and still taking care of your mental health, because it's just making sure to know exactly how you're feeling right now. So I know that, for example, at the moment, I'm working, as I said, very, very long hours. But every time so far I write, I'm like, eh, still feeling good. Great, feeling good. And when and in the past year, it has happened that I started writing and I was like, not feeling quite good right now. This is this is not great. Then I can take steps to you know, catch it before it becomes too bad. So I would then send an email to my supervisor and saying, look, I'll, can we skip the meeting next week and we can just talk over email, but I, I need a little break basically. Uh, and, you know, we just do that. And which I think works really well once you've established that trust with the people you work with, that you will always deliver what you promised you would deliver, but that you do need to have a little bit of flexibility in terms of how you do it. And sometimes just taking a day off can, you know, change everything in terms of your productivity, your mental health, and even your creativity. So I would just really encourage anyone who has those big goals, but that also is kind of scared of burning out in the process to always check in with yourself very regularly. Could be couple of minutes a day could be, you know, 15 minutes at the end of the week, Sunday evening, the house is quiet, just writing down, how do I feel right now? And if the answer is not too good, what can I do next week? What is one thing I can do next week to make sure that this, this doesn't get out of hand? We are going to run out of time before I ask all of my questions, unfortunately. But I know, you know, as a writer, you've played around with AI. It's something that uh, you, you've done some really cool visuals, you know, that you've shared in your newsletter and uh, seen a lot of that. Tell us your thoughts about AI. A lot of people are worried that it's going to replace copywriters, writers, content writers. Um, where are you when it comes to you know playing around with those kinds of tools? And and is it a help? Is it a hindrance? What, what do you think is going to happen? It is, I think, uh, like any piece of software, it's a tool. So really the way you use it, it really depends on who's the human uh, behind it and using it. So obviously there's the whole bigger way question, way bigger question of, you know, artificial general intelligence, etc. So and obviously we're not going to talk about that right now because that's a way bigger question. But when it comes to uh, what I call artificial creativity, so really AI for creative work, for copywriting, for images, etc., Is AI going to uh, replace humans, basically, when it comes to that kind of work? And I think for a certain kind of work, absolutely yes. For the, But this is also the kind of work that's already not really good at the moment when you, you see all of these um, you know, SEO, overly optimized websites that you can tell that it's really kind of robotic, even though that was written by a human because they're trying to use all of these different keywords, etc. So that kind of work absolutely is going to be replaced by AI and is going to have interesting consequences because it is going to be a period, I think, where there's going to be a lot more crap on the internet that we're going to have to see. But then again, it's just like this kind of like back and forth. Um, search engine algorithms are going to adapt also that's going to get filtered. So, you know, they're already developing and it works pretty well. Um, an automatic check for AI generated content. So I think that's probably going to be deranked a little bit uh, once they once that's that's fully implemented. So yes, it's going some of it is going to be replaced, but I don't think that's necessarily such a bad thing. Um, 
I think that copywriters that are able to write in a way where it is very obvious that it's a human being that wrote the copy are going to become more and more in demand. And in the same way that you uh, buy handmade goods that don't necessarily look as good as the one that is out of a factory, but you pay more money for it because that was made by a human being, so it has more value. I think handmade copy is going to have more value. There's going to be an aura effect, a luxury effect of saying that our copy is actually written by real humans. And this is where I don't know exactly how that's going to work and what it's going to look like, but I'm so interested to see how companies are going to start signaling this. How are they going to show their audience this is everything here is written by humans. We are actual humans. I don't know what that's going to look like, but I think it's going to be very fun to observe that shift where we're going to really, really value human written copy. Oh, I love that response. It gives us gives us hope and um, excitement for the future of writing. Um, as we wrap, where can our listeners go if they want to work with you or hear more from you or be a part of your community? Where can they go? Uh, just go to nestlabs.com, N-E-S-S-L-A-B-S.com. And I'm not even going to share my Twitter account because it's impossible to pronounce. But you can find all of the information about my work and stay and get in touch if you go to my website, nestlabs.com. And uh, I'll just follow up and say, you know, your YouTube channel, your Twitter, it's worth following just for the ideas that you share. You know, I, I every week it, there's something else. I'm just like, oh, that's that's interesting. And with the advice you gave us earlier about adding stuff to our notes, maybe I'll start connecting all of that stuff together in some way. And and I might be smarter next week. Who knows? There's, there's <laughs> <chance>. <laughs> Thanks, Anlar. Thanks for having me. All right, so that's the end of our interview with Anilar. Before we go, there were a couple of other things that stood out to us that we want to highlight. So Rob, why don't you kick it off? So one of the things that I think this might resonate with me a lot because I see this or I talk about this quite a bit, but uh, when Anilar was talking about you don't need to quit your job to explore other options. So, you know, she uh, early on, you know, quit Google with no other options to go to. She was at a point where it worked for her because, you know, she was on her own. She didn't have a lot of uh, people depending on her. But, um, you know, the, this idea that you can start to explore, you can even think about pivots and other changes you want to make in your business without making huge, massive, drastic changes yet. And then as those things start to make sense, as you lean into them, then it, there's a time uh, for making that change. I, I've referred to that sometimes as uh, creating a runway for yourself. The longer the runway, the more time you have to you know, get off the ground, the better. Sometimes you need money for that. Sometimes you need time. Sometimes you need support from people around you. Um, this reminds me of our interview with Jenny Blake, where she talked about pivots and how to pivot your career. I believe that was episode number 41, if somebody wants to go back and listen to that again. Um, but it's, you know, it, it differs. Um, sometimes you do need to make a break and a change, but most of the time we can ease into some of these changes that we want to make. Yeah. I mean, that again, that was probably another really helpful part of the conversation for me because I am someone where I just kind of like when things aren't quite working perfectly, I just want to, I want to run away and just start over. I want to burn it all down. And you know, that's not always the best way to move forward. And so I need to hear this message around, like, you can just 
take it slowly. You can slow down. You can build upon what you've already created. You don't have to start from scratch again. And um, that that's advice she would give to herself if she could go back in time. And I think one of her actual questions that she asked herself was, do I have to start from scratch or is there a way for me to get the change I need while building on top of what I have today instead of starting from scratch again? And that's a great question to ask. Um, and so that's, I'm all about small pivots now and just thinking about small pivots and not burning it all down and starting over, which can be very painful and is unnecessary probably 95% of the time. Absolutely. Related to that was Anne Laura's advice that we don't need to be in a rush. We can trust the process, enjoy the journey. And that kind of got me thinking there's, there's kind of this dichotomy of advice that we often get in business. You know, one is like Anne Laura was saying, you don't need to rush things. You can let things happen, trust the process. But also, oftentimes we'll say or we'll hear, you also don't have to wait. You don't have to wait for permission. You don't have to wait to be told it's okay. And so there's some balance between those two ideas that um, sometimes can be a little bit hard to find, but they're both really important to hold. Don't rush through things. Don't hurry things faster than they have to be, but also don't wait longer than you need to. Yeah, that's a good point. And it's almost like, you know, maybe it's don't wait for permission to try something but do slow down and take your time before making a major decision or a major pivot um, or maybe even a small pivot and like take your time, but don't, don't, don't hold yourself back from uh, making the first move and experimenting. And that kind of goes along with what Elora was saying a little bit later when she was talking about how she couldn't do everything. One of her experiments had to drop when she started her PhD program. She stopped doing so much with video. And that's just a really good reminder too, especially when so many of us are building these businesses. You know, we're the only person working in our business oftentimes. Sometimes we're the only person at home or we have a lot of responsibilities, you know, outside of work that take us away from that. You can't do everything. And so it's okay to stop doing some things if they stop serving you or if they don't make sense. It might be temporary, it might be permanent, but you don't have to do all the things. Yeah. And the way that she catches herself is by asking, how are you feeling right now? And, you know, we've talked a lot about journaling, so I don't think we need to touch on it um, anymore, but you don't even have to journal. You could just have that check-in moment with yourself on a regular basis and get in the practice of doing that because, it could be that you are working a long day, but you're so energized because you love what you're doing and you're feeling really good, then it's not a problem you have to address. So it almost helps us avoid making any hard rules for ourselves, like don't ever work a 10 hour day. But what if you are feeling great and you're working a 10 hour day and you feel good? Why not? And so I think that check-in is a really great way to catch things before they become a problem. And so whether it takes journaling or just checking with yourself maybe every day, maybe twice a day, that could be really helpful. I might start experimenting with that a little bit more. Yeah, I, I'm looking forward to hearing how your experiments turn out with that stuff. One other thing that stood out to me as, and this is maybe the last thing that I'll mention specifically, we asked Anne Laura about AI, the future of copywriting, where that's going. And she said something that I had been thinking about over the last few days as well. And I was actually really interested in hearing her say the same idea because the idea that handcrafted copy or that there's some value in copy that's not created by machines is a little bit like, you know, the leather bag that is handmade or workshop made as opposed to made in a factory 
engineer by machines. Um, there's an idea there that's, I think, really interesting. And I hope she's right in that, you know, that handcrafted copy um, that we'll have ways to talk about that and it'll be seen as valuable. But along with that idea is the, the notion like when something is handcrafted, a lot of something extra goes into it, right? It's not just that it's handcrafted, but there's that extra time or there's tools, you know, that are, that are used that maybe machines don't do, or there's attention paid to, you know, the stitching on a bag or the way that something is, is created. And we need to take that same approach to copy it, you know, just because copy is human made does not necessarily make it better. It's the things that the humans are doing with the copy that will ultimately make it better than what a machine can do. And so it's an interesting idea to think about. I'm curious also to see where that goes, but uh, yeah, something, uh, something that we need to figure out how to talk about as she, as she mentioned. Yeah. And we already announced that we're starting a new podcast, AI for creatives. And so we're going to be diving a lot deeper into the topic. And if you are listening and you have any interest in exploring AI with the two of us, then you can check the show notes for a link to jump on the interest list so we can let you know when the new podcast comes out. Absolutely. All right. Well, I want to ask you, Rob, because a lot of what we talked about was around your comfort zone. And so I'm curious what you have done this week or what you will do this week to step out of your comfort zone? Ah, that's that's a really interesting question because one of my sons just uh, texted me yesterday saying, hey, will you do this thing with me? It's kind of like a 75 hard, but uh, involves a couple of different things. It's not all exercise. There's some intellectual and some spiritual pursuits, things like that. And I just committed to him that, yeah, I would do something like that with him. I'm not exactly sure what that's going to be, but it involves like regular exercise. It involves silent time, which is something I don't do very often. You know, like literally 15 minutes of silence, meditative yeah, time. Uh, it involves some reading, um, I think I said exercise, right? Like eating. So anyway, we'll see how that all comes together and what he decides to to put together. But uh, that's one of the things that I'm doing. I cannot wait for spring to get here so I can get outside more for exercise. And I know we already talked about this last week, one of the things you're doing to step out of your comfort zone, but is there anything besides? Yeah, there is. There is. So yes, it's what I already did this week. So it's check, it's off the list, but I volunteered at my son's second grade classroom to do arts and crafts. And so it's funny because to me, training for an Ironman is a lot more comfortable than hanging out with a bunch of seven and eight year olds in a classroom and actually like leading them through arts and crafts. And so that was my big thing for this week. I was like, I would rather teach and talk to a hundred different business owners in a room than get in front of 27 year olds and work with them. So that was my out of my comfort zone moment. And I survived and it was actually really fun, really creative and enjoyable. So maybe I need to do more of that, hanging out with the young kids, hanging out less with the adults. Yeah, I'm going to let you take care of that one for me. I think I'll, I'll stay in my adult comfort zone at least a little while longer. So we want to thank Anne-Laura LeConf for joining us on the podcast and giving us a glimpse into what she's doing in her business and in her life. If you want to connect with Anne-Laura, head over to nestlabs.com or follow her on Twitter where she's very active. And we'll link to both of those in the show notes. And that's the end of the episode of the Copywriter Club podcast. The intro music was composed by copywriter and songwriter Addison Rice, and the outro was composed by copywriter and songwriter David Muntner.
If you enjoyed today's episode, and I think you probably did, please visit Apple Podcasts and leave a review of today's show. We will 100% read it out loud in the next episode, as long as it's a four or five. Uh, We will read it. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Copywriters coming together to help the world write better copy and make more money.